1 John 4, verses 13 through 5, 4. Again, that's 1 John 4, 13 through 5, 4. Pay careful attention, for this is the Word of God. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his neighbor, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help today. As we open your word to us, give us faith to believe all your promises. Empower us by your spirit to obey all your commands. And give us the confidence and assurance that only your word can bring. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to describe for you one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Now, I was nearly 18 years old when I found myself in court waiting to plead my case before a judge. Now, there was no jury to assure a fair trial, and I had no lawyer to represent me. My fate depended entirely upon the mercy or lack thereof, of a judge. Now what great crime did I commit to warrant such a troubling state, you might wonder? A speeding ticket. You see, apparently there is a a Missouri law that if you get a speeding ticket within so many months of your 18th birthday, you must appear before a judge to give recompense for your sin. So going back to the story... After I checked in, I I took a seat, waiting for them to call my name. I must have rehearsed my story what felt like hundreds of times, each time becoming less and less confident that it would make a difference. Every few moments, one of the judges would call out someone's name at random, and the whole room 
would drop silent as we all tried to listen in and hear if that judge would be merciful. Now eventually, they called my name. My heart started racing and as I stood up and walked to what felt like a death sentence, I prayed, God, if you love me, (laughs) make this whole ticket thing disappear. I want you to notice what I had just done. At that moment, I was not the only one on trial. Rather, in my mind and in my heart, I put God on trial. And I was the judge. And I would rule him loving or unloving, depending on how this whole ticket situation worked itself out. Now, in my case, the judge was indeed merciful and allowed me to pay a small fee to make the whole thing disappear. And in turn, as a benevolent judge, I ruled that God was indeed loving. He was exonerated of all charges. It was a good day for both me and God. We both walked out of that courtroom declared innocent. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm here today to tell you that you are not God's judge. God is not on trial, and His love is not in question. Rather, God has proven His love once and for all. And in our text this evening, we see two definitive proofs of God's love. If you're taking notes, we will approach our text in three parts. We'll see two proofs and a response. Two proofs and a response. We'll see first proof one, the Spirit, God's gift of fellowship. Proof two, the Son, God's gift of love. And then lastly, the response, Spirit-empowered love. So let us turn to our first proof, the Spirit. Look with me at verse 13. John said, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. Now I want you to notice the simple assumption behind this text. And that is that you can in fact know. Well what is it that you can know? You can know that we abide in God. And God abides in us. So clearly that little word abide. It's very important to understanding our text. It shows up two other times in this passage. Now, depending on the translation you have, some translations may say remain instead of abide. And there's certainly an idea of endurance that is meant in this word. But I would argue that that word abide is actually a far better translation. Because in John's mind, this word, often conveys the idea of an intimate fellowship. For instance, in John's Gospel, this word is often used to describe the close relationship between the persons of the Trinity. Take, for instance, John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 10. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells, the same word, the Father who abides in me does his works. So here we see that the Father abides in Jesus, and Jesus in the Father. We see the Spirit used with reference to this word in John chapter 1, verse 32. This is John the Baptist. And he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained, again, same word, abided on him. So here we see that the Spirit abided upon Jesus. So the Father abides in Jesus, the Spirit abides on Jesus. Now, I want you to stick with me here for a moment because this may sound a little heady, but but I promise you it's worth it. So hang in there. Lest we be confused, we worship one God in three persons. Now, these persons are distinguished, but they're never separated. The Father is not the Son, but the Father is in the Son, and the Son in the Father. As one pastor rightly said, the three persons exist as one God without crowding out the others. They overlap and indwell one another completely and totally without in any way compromising the personal distinctions between them. Okay, why am I telling you this? After all, the Trinity can seem rather academic. Why is it important that you know this? Well, it's important because it shows us that God is not stoic and lifeless. He's not a cold statue or an absent father. No, church, this is your God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They know each other and love each other. They glorify one another and delight in the other. They have loved each other from all eternity without any needs, wants, or lacks. They are infinitely happy in one another. They abide in one another. And our text takes a surprising twist. Because in our text, it is not speaking about God intimately fellowshipping with himself. No, in our text, God abides in us. Well, how can we know that God abides in us? Well, our text tells us we know that God abides in us because he has given us his spirit. Our assurance that God lives in us does not come from our actions or our feelings, but it comes from God's action. God has given us His Spirit. Just as the Father fellowships with the Son, so we too have been invited into the fellowship of God by the Holy Spirit. We can say then that the Spirit is God's gift of fellowship. But how can we know that we have the Holy Spirit? Well, we see our answer in verses 14 through 15. So look with me at these verses. Starting in verse 14. 
And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So in verse 14, we see that the apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus. But they didn't just keep their testimony to themselves, but they proclaimed it to us, that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And God's Spirit lives in the person who believes the apostles' testimony. Jesus is God's Son, and that He is the Savior of the world. You see, the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit is not that you can speak in tongues or foretell the future, but the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit is that you have faith in Jesus Christ. So to sum up so far, the first proof of God's love is that God has given you the gift of His fellowship, the Holy Spirit. And if you have faith in Christ this evening, you can be assured that God's Spirit abides in you. Well, we've seen the the first proof, the Holy Spirit. Let us now look at the second proof, the Son, God's gift of love. So look with me at verse 16. John says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. So here we see that faith in Jesus' atonement, that is faith in His death and resurrection, is faith in God's love for you. Now we see that with that little word, so. That little word, so, connects us back up to verses 14 and 15. The logic goes like this. We believe that the Father sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. So, in this way, we have come to know and to believe that God loves us. In other words, John is simply saying that if you want to know whether or not God loves you, All you have to do is look at the cross. We see this all throughout Scripture, but take, for instance, John 3.16, that famous passage, for God so loved the world, or maybe better yet, for this is how God showed His love for the world, that He gave His only Son. Or Romans 8.32 describes the Father as He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. You see, God's great proof of love, His great gift of love, was His crucified Son for us. And notice the personal nature of this love. God didn't just give Jesus for for some random person out there. But He did it for you. Christian, Jesus died for you. The Father loves you. Now you may be here thinking, you got it all wrong. God doesn't love me. 
you only knew the things that I've done, if you only knew how unlovable I am, you would not say that God loves me. But I say to you, look at the next part of verse 16. God is love. Why does God love you? It's not because of some lovable trait in you, but the love that is in God. It is not because of who you are, but who God is. God loves you because God is love. This is glorious. But what does it look like to actually believe that God loves us in this extravagant way by giving us His Son? Well, we see exactly what it looks like in verses 17 and 18. It looks like having confidence before Him. So look with me at verses 17 and 18. John said, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So here John compares two types of people. Now perhaps these were people he knew, maybe even people in his own congregation. And as I describe these two different people, I want you to be thinking, which one am I like? Now both of these men are thinking about judgment day. And the first man whom John describes as being perfected in love, he has confidence when he thinks about the day of judgment. However, the man who has not been perfected in love, he fears punishment. What is the chief difference between these two men? Well, the man who fears punishment is like a man who looks in the mirror feeling deep shame for all the wrongs he has done. And then he lifts his eyes to heaven and shudders. His faith reminds us of the kind of faith James says that demons have. Because though he believes that God is one, he trembles because he knows that that one God is devoted to to his destruction. The second man, who is perfected in love, well, he's very similar to the first man in that he knows his sin. But here is where he's different. Before he looks up to the heavens, he looks to Christ. He remembers that though he has disobeyed, Christ obeyed in his stead. In this great exchange, he has traded his sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. The great Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs models for us this kind of man. He said, often I think to myself, what am I, a poor sinful creature? But I have a righteousness in Christ that answers all. I am weak in myself, but Christ is strong and I am strong in Him. 
I am foolish in myself, but I am wise in Him. What I want in myself, I have in Him. He is mine, and His righteousness is mine, which is the righteousness of God-man. Being clothed with this, I stand safe against conscience, hell, wrath, and whatsoever. Though I have daily experience of my sins, yet there is more righteousness in Christ who is mine and who is chief of 10,000. than there is sin in me. Did you hear that this morning? There is more righteousness in Christ who is mine than there is sin in me. Now, when this man lifts his eyes to the heavens, he does not fear, but he has confidence. Because as verse 17 says, just as Christ is, so also are we in this world. In other words, because of Christ's work, when God looks upon us, He no longer sees our sin, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, which man are you like today? We see, being perfected in love is not about sinless perfection, but it's about faith in the the love of God that gives you perfect standing before him. It's looking to Christ as your mediator, the one who stands between you and the Father. If you are finding yourself more like the man who fears judgment, I plead with you, look to Christ. Believe that His righteousness is yours. Believe that there is more righteousness in Christ than there is sin in you. Believe that God loves you and accepts you in Christ. For the perfect love of God in the face of Jesus Christ cast out all fear of judgment. Well, we have seen that God has graciously given us His Spirit, His gift of fellowship, and His Son, His gift of love. How ought we to respond to such a great salvation? Well, John tells us that there really is only one response. And we see that response in verse 19. Look with me in verse 19. John says, We love because He first loved us. Love is the response. We love God And we love our brothers and sisters. Now this is a a different kind of love than the world knows. It's not a love that says, you scratch my back and then I'll scratch your back. Or you love me first and then I will love you. No, it's a love that's rooted in Christ's love for us. Christian love says, He loved me first, so I will love you. Now let's get very practical for a moment. Husbands, should you 
do the dishes, or whatever it is you do to show your wife love. Because if you love her now, your wife might reciprocate that love tonight. This text says no. Rather, remember that Christ first loved you when you had nothing good to offer Him. He gave you His righteousness when all you had to give was your sin. He gave you His Spirit when all you had to offer was your rebellious spirit. Your love tank is full because you've been loved with the perfect love of Christ that has driven out all fear of punishment and rejection. Therefore, husbands, whenever you do the dishes or whatever it is you do, do it because God has loved you perfectly. And this is an opportunity to love Him in return. Wives, when your husband angers you and everything in you wants to put the boxing gloves on, remember Christ's love. For you deserve God's hate, His wrath. You deserved His boxing gloves, His raised voice, His cold shoulder. But instead, you got His outstretched arms, His loving embrace, His fellowship, and His love. Do not wait for your husband to love you first. No, love your husbands because Christ has loved you first. Brothers and sisters, this is Christian love. And this love is so distinctive of the Christian life that John says that it is, it's actually one of the evidences that the Spirit is in us. We see this in 1 John 3, verse 16. John says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So here, when John is speaking of abiding in love, John is saying that just as the Father, Son, and Spirit dwelt together in perfect love before the foundations of the world, so now we should dwell together in love for one another. This is the mark that God abides in us, that we abide together in love. Now at this point, someone might object. Well, my love for God has nothing to do with my love for my neighbor. But John responds by saying, to love God, you must love your brother and sister. Or to, to put it negatively, it is impossible to love God and hate your brother. John then goes on to give four arguments for the impossibility of loving God and hating your brother. We will cover these very quickly. The first argument is the argument from easier to harder. We see this in verse 20. John says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. So here John's argument, we have a very similar saying to, to what he's arguing here. It's out of sight, out of mind. How easy is it to love someone well whom you know that you're going to see them again tomorrow? But oh, how difficult it is to truly love others well when you know you won't even see them till perhaps Christmas. If you don't love your brother whom you can see, who's right in front of you, why should we think that you would love your God whom you can't see? Well, the second argument is the argument from one command. We see this in verse 21. John says, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So here John makes two statements. Love for God and love for your brother. He says that these are really one command. To break the part of the command that's love your brother is to break the first part of the command, love God. In other words, it's one command. It cannot be separated. John's third argument is that love for the Father necessarily includes love for his children. We see this in verse 1. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now, over my time in seminary, uh, my wife and I became very good friends with this other uh, student, this other seminarian. His, his name's Gavin, his wife's Cassidy. And we found that we've had a, a lot in common. We, we all are from the, the same state. We all have similar church backgrounds. And we're all members of the same church. So we have a lot in common. We're, we're good friends with them. And Gavin, he has this beautiful little son named Henry. And I love little Henry. But I want you to imagine if for some stupid reason I told Gavin, look Gavin, I think you're great. But I think you should know, I can't stand your son, Henry. How do you think Gavin would respond? It'd probably be the end of our friendship. Why? Because Gavin loves his son. And to hate something that he loves so dearly is to hate the father himself. And you see, in our passage, John says, love for the Father necessarily includes love for His children. And we know that everyone who believes in Jesus is a child of God. So just take a moment and look around this room. The people you are seeing here are God's children whom He loves fiercely. The same God who has loved you has loved those sitting in the pews around you. Therefore, love one another. And John's last argument is that loving God includes obedience. You see this in verses 2 through 3. John says, And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Argument's very simple. If you love God, you will keep His commandments. 
And we're reminded back to verse 21. And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Christian, if you are anything like me, this call to Christian love feels very weighty. You might be thinking, wait a minute. You're telling me I have to love? That's hard. I don't know if I can do that. I feel like you're placing me under the law again. Well, brothers and sisters, if, if you feel the weight of Christian love, then you are precisely where John wants you. Because now as he closes out our text, he comes to you like a loving pastor and he takes the burden off your shoulders. Look with me at verses 3 through 4. John says, And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. This language of, of overcoming the world. It brings back uh, to mind Jesus' words in, in John's Gospel when he said, in this world you will have tribulation, but, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus was not seduced by the forbidden pleasures of this world. Not even for one millisecond did Jesus believe Satan's lies about God. When faced with death or disobedience, he chose death. The world could not control him, so they crucified him. But even then, he rose from the grave. He has truly defeated the powers of Satan and conquered the world. But our text says that not only has Jesus overcome the world, but that we have overcome the world. And listen to this. Because this is how John is going to take away our burdens. Christian, we have overcome this world not by perfectly obeying the law. Not by perfectly loving our brothers and sisters. But we have overcome by being born of God. And by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, by his obedience in life and in death, Jesus has overcome the world. And now the Spirit applies in us what Christ has done outside of us. Therefore, Christ's victory is our victory. God's command to love is no longer burdensome like it was before. Because in Christ, we have already overcome the world. You're not fighting for victory, but from victory. Furthermore, the 
The Spirit has given us new life and faith in Christ, empowering us to do the very things that we could not do before. So, brothers and sisters, who have been given the Spirit, God's gift of fellowship, and the Son, God's gift of love, by the power of the Spirit, and in light of Christ's victory, love one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love towards us. You have indeed given us your right hand of fellowship in the Spirit, and you have shown us your love in the Son. Help us today to love one another as you have loved us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.